Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Senior Programmer for Literature and Spoken Word here at Southbank Centre, and I'm delighted to be joined by Teju Cole. Teju Cole is a writer and photographer, a poet of both the visual and the verbal realms. Open city, every day is for the thief, known and strange things, and now blind spot, conceived after he suffered an attack of papilloflebitis, or big blind spot syndrome, in 2011, this quartet of books about the limits of vision irresistibly ask us to look again at what we might have missed in the dingy corners of our perception. Or to quote Wordsworth, Cole's work reminds us that we see in glimpses. Each glimpse into Cole's world deepens our sense of the ongoing moment around us and the metaphorical echoes that the world of things present to us. Industrial sheeting becomes a religious shroud. Folded chairs squeezed between a fire hydrant and a van seen on the way to a Black Lives Matter rally become a charged political analogy. A budding hedgerow tells us spring, even in America, is Japanese. Cole is a virtuoso of the unsaid and traces this singing line of images in a pilgrimage around the world from Zurich and Brazzaville to Chicago, Brooklyn and Beirut. I also feel I should point out that our conversation takes place this evening in the shadow of the London Eye and behind some blinds. So I feel like we're particularly well-placed for a conversation about blind spots. Teju, it's wonderful to have you here. If you could just join me now in giving him a very warm round of applause to welcome him. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to read an excerpt of the... Um the texts that go with these photographs I think of as voiceovers. When I was writing them, I really thought of them as being sounded out loud in the reader's mind. So not just as captions, which have a different kind of relationship with the photo that they're next to, but as voiceovers, almost as though this were a kind of documentary. Behind him, the river rushes. Is he a type of Christ or is he an angel? That glove is as intense and uncanny as a pair of wings. Or is he St. Christopher, the Christ-bearer, the river's lip? But all three are carriers and types of one another too. Like them, the boy moves between metaphors. Suddenly, he lowers his head. His eyes disappear. The land is a maze. You have to be guided through. Right from the beginning, you have to be guided. The first story in the world is about safe passage. An iron fence spirals into the distance, enforcing on the land a separation in the mind. In the grass near the inspection post at Sasabe, on the Mexican side, someone has planted two white crosses. The large one lists at a 60-degree angle. On the smaller one, you can see the word mujeres. The code is made of wounds. I was around 15. I had myself been wearing glasses for many years, but perhaps I thought my problem was less urgent because it was less severe. The kid had Coke bottle glasses on. He was on the edge of blindness. This was at a time when God had been moving through me, saving souls with my preaching gift, raising up a band of faithful fellow students. I told him to take the glasses off. I place a thumb on each closed eyelid. Open your eyes. Look in the distance. What do you see? He squinted. It's blurry. He put the glasses back on. I explained to him that without absolute faith, there would be no healing. 
Do you believe that you can be healed? I believe. Then be healed in the name of Christ. Take off your glasses. He took them off and blinked. Do you see now? He was wary of disappointing me. I'm sorry. It's still blurry. He walked away puzzled, but there was no puzzle there really beyond his lack of faith. I think that that moment of double vision is a great place to start for a conversation. And one of the things that strikes me about it is that the book seems to be born out of an awareness of fragility, of different kinds of fragility. And your own, in the case of this episode um, of impairment, visual impairment, but what you seem to want to do through the book is to attune us to different kinds of fragility. And sometimes those can be beautiful moments of fleeting fragility, a moment of an intersection of things. And sometimes it can be a wounded fragility, um, yeah. an object which is somehow trying to tell us something about our circumstances. Is that, do you think fragility for you is where it began? Is that how it started? Yeah, for sure. I feel as if provisionality in general, the, this sense that things cannot be permanent, is often adjacent to the sublime. That's what gives us a chance to exceed our circumstances. You know, knowing that it can't be perfected and it cannot be implacable. But having this troubled my eyes, which, you know, thankfully sort of went away, even though the doctor reassuringly said, oh, it can come back at any time. <laughs> um, and to my question about what I could do to prevent it, he very helpfully added, oh, nothing. So talk about provisionality. But even before that happened, I think there was a sort of antecedent sensitivity to just how conditional our, our situation was. I'm a black man in a white world, so you know, subjectivity is, is reality. I'm also somebody who sort of moved from the verities of religious belief into a place of, of doubt and not being able to sort of assert for sure, that X equals Y. And so I think in all my work, I've tried to explore what it means to look at the world from the point of view of not being sure. You write beautifully about that loss of certainty and loss of faith. And you write, once absolute faith is no longer possible, perception moves forward on a case-by-case basis and the very contingency and brevity of vision becomes the long-sought miracle. Is that sense of miracle, does it accompany you? I feel I have the gift of epiphany, you know. Mm -hmm. It doesn't solve anything, but it, it helps you get along. I very much think, you know, you're one of the writers I really look up to, Virginia Woolf, I think she had the gift of epiphany. Mm. She struggled mightily with her, her mental state. But you see these moments where she's sort of walking through, in her diaries, for example, she's walking through the city late in the evening, and everything is just sort of like happening at the same time, and she is just blooming with life. And this happens to her time and time again. It has so much to do with knowing that it is not permanent and, and it's not even deserved. You move from the desire to see everything to a desire to be able to see what is in front of you, to be able to, to grip a table and to have an experience with your hand touching something that might have a history to it. It doesn't have to be bigger than that. I'm very glad to hear that Wolf is still an important writer for you, despite the fact that you thought that perhaps she might have 
contributed to your blindness at one point. <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> um, the story he's telling there is that the morning in April 2011, when I woke up completely sort of blind in one eye, the previous night I had stayed up very late reading Virginia Woolf's diaries. And, you know, when you're sort of near the end of a book, especially something you've been with for a long time, you're like, you know what? It's me and you today. I'm finishing this book today. I don't care how late. So I, I, I ended up like sort of being there reading this book until three in the morning. I went to sleep and I woke up and I couldn't see out of one eye. And I thought, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> I just thought it was a strange coincidence. <laughs> I want to return to this idea of looking at impermanence and provisionality. And there seems also to be a political dimension to that. And you mentioned that in some ways it's, there's, it's a political stance to say, I know everything, I see everything. Mm-hmm. And that actually there's another perspective which is that I see part of this particularly perhaps at the moment that feels like a very a nuanced de-escalation from a position that might be saying I know everything. Yeah I mean one of the crude ways you could sort of divide the political split between people who say though this is what we are and this is our civilization and you know we don't take nonsense and the people who say we who or what we are is expansive or it can contain a lot more yeah nothing is ever purely aesthetics right it's so inevitably it opens up to something else how much room do you want to make for other possibilities in the way you look at the world and therefore how do you react to the people who seek to foreclose those possibilities unfortunately you know sometimes when you're making fine discriminations like that It is very easy for it to be misread as a different kind of split between people who have money and people who don't. But I think that's something that's actually weaponized by political agents for their own purposes. Because some of the most subtle people I know have no money. And obviously, some very rich people Mm. have no soul. (laughs) No one in particular, but you know. (laughs) I grew up in Nigeria and... I had a happy childhood and I had many happy times there, but Nigeria is a difficult place and I live in New York City now and I like it well enough. It's also a difficult place in certain ways. It's funny, but both Lagos and New York are actually quite harsh places. I get a lot of energy from them, but I've never really had sort of this sense of ownership about Nigeria, which is, nor the US, which is where I was born. And yet the kind of relationship that many other people, maybe some people in this room, have to land I've never had that. Taking a certain joy in temporariness becomes the life, you know. Even the people who are attached to a land are not going to have it forever. So, you know, they have their land for, you know, 70 years. And I have a city for a week. That's enough because there's, there's more. There's another place, you know. Do you think that you're a different Teju in all of these homes? Actually, no. I think I'm mm. pretty much the same person. What, mm. I mean, then the trick becomes to find your family in all those places, you know, to mm. find the people who sort of speak the language of your heart in all those places. This book is like uh, photos from 25 countries. And in the past few years, I think I've gone to about 40 different countries. And the amazing thing is the possibility of finding sympathetic spirits in every single one of those places. And the first few times it happened, it sort of really knocked me back on my feet. You know, I, I I think I gave a reading in, it was in India. And after the reading, an elderly lady in a sari came up to me and said, I really love Open City so much. It's one of my favorite books. 
And I thought, okay, so what else do we have in common? Probably exactly nothing, except that we probably do have a lot in common because we had assumptions about how many windows to leave open Mm -hmm. and what kinds of traffic we wanted happening through us. So that by the time, you know, I did an event in Indonesia and I had a bunch of excited high schoolers come up to me and tell me that they liked my work, the thought I had at that moment was, I recognize you, I know who you are. You live in Indonesia, I live in New York, I'm 20 years older than you are, Mm -hmm. or, you know, more than 20 years older. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm a little bit older than you are, but you are dreaming a world that has something connected to the world I'm dreaming. I feel like a lot of my work is absolutely political. I have no choice. It has to be. But at at the same time, and especially in Blind Spot, I I would very much like the reader to feel like there was an intimate form of address going on there. You've shown us in this book that, particularly around questions of transience, I think, you, sh- you say at one point you can't see an echo of a person once they've moved out mm-hmm. of the frame. That's right. And that perhaps by capturing the memory of, a, of someone, you, 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 know, you speak of these encounters with family around the world, and you're kind of memorializing that in a way, these, these traces and echoes of people. You know, in a way, part of... What we find so precious about another human being, part of what makes grief so heavy when we lose someone, when someone dies, is because we are inarticulately aware of the vast seams of memory that they carry with them. Each person is a highly specialized library that cannot be replaced because of the infinity of encounters that they've had, that person really contains, has contained so much, much more than what we're able to annotate. Mm. In fact, what we're able to annotate can hardly move beyond the symbolic level in comparison to the pith and depth of human memory, human experience. And for me, that's as good an argument as any for the notion of uh, universal human rights. Other people are precious not because of how much they can contribute to the economy, not because they're just lucky enough to live in a country where the government is not killing them, but other people are precious because, just like us, they have the experience of mutual human encounter I very much try to think about human rights in in that way, you know, when you look at boats full of people in the Mediterranean, to try to think of them as people, people who are eager to reach shore so they can get on Facebook and reassure their loved ones. There are people on those boats who have said, I will send you a text when I get there. They're just like us. There's a sense that you're documenting these lives that might be on the margins, but also that an object which we might pass by might speak for those people. And I think that's one of the the striking things, that toppled partition that you found in London or drapery. I'm never going to look at industrial drapery in the same way again. It's always a religious shroud now. (laughs) Yes, that's Um, right. (laughs) And for me, it's not those objects for their own sakes, but because of the way they communicate with human experience... Not a whole lot of people in my pictures 
about the lots and lots of pictures of objects, almost every landscape I depict is touched by human presence. The human actually is what matters in the world. But for me, the center of my ethos is the human. Um, so that if we see a drape or something on the road or even just empty boxes or whatever it might be, chairs, there's a way in which it reminds us of us because it is also responding to the environment that we live in. It's responding to gravity and it's re responding to the weather and to the wind and to, to sunlight. There's a way in which I feel as if the making of analogies is a fundamental human gesture. It's a, it's a skill. I think it's very intimately connected to the birth of poetry, the moment at which you say something is like something else. And the first person who did that, you know, she, was, she probably said, this is like that. And then two seconds later said to herself, why am I so moved? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that was how poetry was invented, you know. So I think analogy is some form of symbolic thinking is at the heart of what we think of as human. You're quite comfortable with describing these things as in mystical terms, which I think is quite refreshing. Cause, and mm. the word poetry, you, you explore really interestingly in the book and describe that it's essentially that nothing re that remains within a genre can be poetry, that it has to transcend and has to speak to other forms of poetry. I, I f often find myself wishing we had a different or better word in English for mm. this thing I'm, I try to think of as poetry, you know, the, the moment when something takes flight, uh, where or where it, you know, sort of connects with the heart's deep core. I mean, what could be more horrifying than somebody saying, oh, I, I, I write poetry, would you like to hear some? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, no thanks. We get that a lot here. Yeah, That's, no, yeah. I don't want to hear your poems. So it's sort of associated with an abundance of affect and a minimum of skill, right? <laughs> Which, <laughs> and it should be the opposite. <laughs> a true poet is somebody who's channeling something from somewhere, you know, that he or she cannot even give an account for. A poet is somebody who is a conduit for powers that cannot be quite tamed. And I wish that when we heard the word poetry, that's what we thought about. Because when we hear a piece of music that really is devastating and really takes us somewhere else, we read a book that's really, really good, all of those things have something in common. Improvisation and radical temporariness. Something that is just fulfilling the strictures of its genre. You know, you count your syllables and you've got a haiku. Maybe technically you do, but it doesn't make you basho. <laughs> Going back to the, the gift of, of epiphany that you mentioned, to what extent it is also a way to escape and remove yourself from um, the things that you also write about, the politics, mm -hmm. uh, racial discrimination, yeah. um, class issues. It, it seems that sometimes you, you know, focusing on the aesthetics and, mm -hmm. and on the poetry of this world is, mm -hmm. is a very convenient place to avoid the more difficult uh, Mm -hmm. hurricane and, and fires that are around us. Is that a deliberate or is it yeah. a, an unconscious uh, reaction yeah. to this? Oh, it's absolutely deliberate because I don't want to spend all my life in struggle. The world can be a fine place, but it's also a horrible place. And 
And there are people who were fully immersed in it, sometimes to an ascetic and extreme extent. And some of them are admirable. I mean, think of someone like Simone Weil, for example. No, that's not me. That's not what I want to do. I want to stand up for what's right, but I also really want to have a good time. Your self-deprivation and self-abnegation is actually not liberating anybody else. Your being free is what frees others. And I, I think this is especially important for those of us who are marginalized in some way, if you're a person of color, if you're a queer person, if you're a woman, and so on, if you're a Muslim in this society. I mean, do what you like. Because the bastards are doing what they like. Um, I'm, I'm, I wasn't aware of this, but before this talk, I thought it was just the title of the talk. But it does, it seems like... Um, it you, seems ha you had a blind spot there. I did, I did <laughs> and, and you're selling it to me well. It does... It does um, it sounds like the book could be kind of like you could find in the sort of like the philosophical section and under existentialism, it sounds like you're really kind of looking at the existence of these things and their impact on us and our impact on the world. Mm -hmm. It kind of makes me think of, do we need more of that in our modern day politics, in, in our culture nowadays, just more sort of thought on our existence and our, on our impact on environment, society and so on? Oh, no, I don't think we need more thoughtfulness. <laughs> you know, this being sort of filed in the existentialist section. I mean, I suppose I'm not ashamed to say I'm an existentialist. My publisher must be furious with me because this book is actually really, really hard to shelve. It's not exactly a photography book. It's, you know, it's, it's not exactly essays. It's certainly not poetry. It's sort of autobiographical, but not just that. It's not exactly philosophy. It's not, it's a, it's not exactly a lot of different things. This is so very much the book I would wish to have made for this moment. This is the book I want to put into people's hands. You know, I want this to be a work that just sort of creates some kind of space where you can meet me and where you can meet yourself. Certainly in the US, we feel as if subtlety is under assault. I say this very advisedly, I don't think the regime we have in place is simply evil. I think they are mediocre. They're not just anti-science, but they are anti-thinking through things. And the spaces where a society functions on a sophisticated level are being abandoned. They're trying to drag us all down with them, turn everything into shouting contests. And we just have to sort of resist it. And one of the ways of doing that and this sort of goes back to your, your question. Poetry and a poetic way of thinking in the world is not just aesthetics. It is what we will have with us after the apocalypse in order to defend what is human. The things that engage in the in-between quiet and subtle spaces, the things that speak to you at 3 a.m., are the things that that lot don't understand. We have to live in such a way that we're not swept up by, you know, whatever dude has tweeted and not have that become the substance of our lives. Please, for every tweet by that guy you read, read a poem as well. Defend yourself. All right, stay free, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>